Hello and welcome to Season 4 Power Talk. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does and to discover how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. Today, we are joined by Dr. Iche White and she'll be speaking with Ben Lindsay on a GP's perspective on violence affecting young people. Excited as we continue our Power podcast uh, to have Dr. Itche White here with me. Please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do, what you're into, just who you are. It'll be great. Lovely. Um, so I'm a GP. Um, or I work as a GP um, in South London and I also um, help run a adolescent clinic one day a week as well one afternoon in in South London as well mm. yeah and we've done some training together you've done some work for us uh, for Power to Fire and one of the things and I think we met on social media mm. um, particularly at a time off off the back of kind of George Floyd and stuff and and which was really interesting because obviously it was around COVID times as well so mm. I think maybe everyone's social media uptake went up but I was always uh, fascinated and one of the things about Power to Fight is that we try and look at this issue around youth violence from multiple perspectives mm. and try and give a voice to spaces which you wouldn't normally see speaking into this conversation. So uh, I've always been thinking, okay, what is a GP perspective on this issue? Because they will see young people, they will see families. Um, And then we'll get into a little bit later some of the training stuff that we've done. But I suppose the first thing I just want to talk to you about is we have seen, tragically, um, in a London context, 30 young people lose their lives in 2020 one um just from your perspective what do you see day to day with young people families um who are going through this type of issues with kind of violence affecting young people just just from your perspective because people will not know people will not see half or half the things that you've seen or the experiences you've had mm-hmm. just give us a bit of an idea of what you see yeah so um, sometimes it's what you don't see. Yes. So the young person who is booked to see you but doesn't come or um, turns up late or things look chaotic with there's um, lack of using the medicines that they might need to be using for a long-term medical problem or they're within a family that has significant needs Um and therefore it can be a real barrier to access care or the support that's needed. Because actually, if you are struggling with unemployment or hunger, your medical needs might end up dropping to the bottom of the pile. Mm-hmm. So um, what we see as GPs often is just um, the need and we can see the complexity of the family relationships and dynamics if there is a family member who is struggling with their mental health uh, as a parent and then the knock-on impact that that has or their substance misuse because of mood and because of all the other things that are going on for that uh, adult 
the then knock-on effects that that has on a young person who is maybe trying to take on a carer role yeah. or multiple other things. So, yeah, I think we are really privileged to be privy to the complexity of people's relationships, um, the networks that they live in. And sometimes it's just a snapshot, but often over time, it's much more than that. And there's kind of a wealth of information that we carry as GPs as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and we talk about frontline practitioners. I mean, you are really at the front line and the complexities that you've just described, I don't think the average person would really think about. Um, how, what do you do with the things that you see and don't see? I mean, I can imagine that you would see um, some of the things you just mentioned, whether it's the substance misuse or the adverse childhood experiences. And do you, are you a bit like a, a police officer investigating and you start connecting the dots and you start trying to map uh, like that, that person's life? And do you often see the the link to violence and which affects young people or does that actually come a little bit later down the line or can you clock this stuff kind of quickly? Mm. I think sometimes there are, are big gaps where young people aren't accessing us um, directly. Um and maybe there's all that's on their notes is hay fever from you know for many years or not or nothing much um until you receive a discharge summary from the hospital that they've had an instrument you know that has caused uh, injury um or that they've you know been discharged because they've got some other injury and you don't necessarily know the detail of that or understand exactly why um i think that's an opportunity which is being understood in like the hospital space of like like let's intervene now let's this is a teachable moment let's have youth workers in a and e mm. doing that work but it also is helpful for us to think in in you know primary care and in in general practice yeah. okay well also is this a moment where we can reach out where we can develop a link where we can understand what's happening for that young person um, and then more so, which sits really well as GPs were well suited to thinking about health promotion and thinking about a young person's mental health. Mm. And we know that that's a really significant part of um, the health burden now. And it emerges really early. Yes. Um, so that's maybe what we see more of or identify more of. So young, <clears throat> give us some typical examples of when young people come in, mm. what are the what are the signs that you see when you're thinking, oh, I'm a bit concerned? Mm. Stuff. So it might be actually that it takes almost the whole consultation to get to what they're really coming in about. So that can be difficult if you're pushed for time and you don't have much resource in terms of GPs. Um, that quick consultation that seems to be about something benign feels much more comfortable mm. to kind of be like, okay, that's the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you're, if you're able to um, take a holistic approach and there is space, um, just kind of dropping in that you can come back for these issues or if you're feeling low or mm. you're struggling with your eating or there might be a myriad of things that anxiety kind of seems to be appearing, health anxiety, booking multiple appointments, for example, mm. about something, that you follow up on that, that you make space and encourage seeing the same GP. Mm. Um and yeah, th so those sorts of things are, are what we might pick up on. So 
mood uh, disturbance or difficulties yeah. with eating, disordered eating. Um, uh, yeah, it might be that there's there's kind of um, worries around housing or something else that seems like a tangential or social issue, mm. but you might be able to und- like unpick that, <clears throat> see what's going on. No, that's really helpful. And um, one of the things which, so I used to work for mental health charity, and um, even the, the, some of the therapeutic work that we we now do, mm-hmm. the things which often come up is the over reliance on on substances. Um, definitely, when I was working for a mental health charity back in twenty ten twenty eleven, <clears throat> skunk played a massive role and in in psychosis and bipolar and stuff like that. Is that something which you would have seen an increase? use of with young people coming into your surgery like i'm not even sure how you pick that up but mm. you know because unlikely that they'll come and say hi are you skunk help it's unlikely but obviously with the demand and supply of, of drugs or supply and demand um in our in the cities and stuff and we know that how the drug market works do you often see the the effect and the impact of young people coming in is this a big thing or are we overplaying it is it not as a big issue as we mm. believe or just from a gp perspective mm. just kind of interested yeah i think it is something that kind of interlinks with mood right so it you're able to unpack that maybe alongside with other risk related mm. behavior especially in that adolescent period if you're actively looking for it. So sure. if you're exploring somebody's low mood and exploring their sleep and exploring their use of something to help with the way they're feeling, whether that's alcohol or other substances like skunk, um, in a non-judgmental way, then often that will will actually come out because a young person may not have connected the dots, yeah. may see it as a plant substance that's not actually a drug, it might be very normalized in their environment. So just identifying it as a linked, potentially this is this is affecting your sleep architecture. This is affecting your mood. Yeah. This is making you feel more paranoid. And there is support available for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it can be a really powerful thing. And we definitely do, I think we do see that. Um, whether there are young people who feel that they can come into that space and talk about it. Yes is another question and also if it feels like that's what then the consultation becomes about obviously you're going to shy away from wanting to talk about it if you've come yeah. because you've stuck <clears throat> yourself up to tell the yeah. doctor that actually you're really suicidal or you're really low yeah it's that's a, it's a really interesting point and how about from a sexual health perspective as well because again i've heard stories of you know young people visiting doctors or gps numerous times but not really having the language or the the courage to really talk about SDIs and all this type of stuff and how how I mean that I'd find that very difficult mm. <laughs> conversation to engage with. How do you manage that? Is that something you see it regularly? Do you, how do you talk through with a young person about particular tests and that type of stuff? Mm, I think actually um young people are quite good at asking for that and they quite like in my experience coming to the GP yeah. not just the sexual health clinic so yeah. it's interesting because we'll often 
signpost young people to sexual health clinics specifically, they don't want to necessarily go to a sexual health clinic often. Yeah. They might prefer to see their GP and talk about what it is that they're worried about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that, that they access that quite well. Um, yeah and are quite good at asking about that. And again, you can follow that on if somebody's had yeah. an unwanted you know, experience where they might fall pregnant. Yes. That's another opportunity to talk through that. Um, so it's an opportunistic thing, but yeah. So one of the things I would say, and it sounds like that <clears throat> term that we often use is that uh, cultural sensitivity or cultural competency. Um, and it sounds like you are a very culturally sensitive GP understands the community um is culturally aware and i suppose one of the things we often see is that that isn't the case for all professionals um and you've been part of some of the training that we've done to try and really increase the cultural sensitivity and awareness for nhs staff gps doctors surgeons all that type of stuff um, and very similar to teaching, actually, I suppose my, my argument has always been we can't just rely on teaching or teachers just knowing their particular subject, particularly if you're coming from out of inner city areas. Mm. Um, so I'm aware of the limitations in, in the cultural awareness of, of teachers. When it comes to GPs, is there an emphasis on the cultures which you are going in to serve and how how do you prepare for that you know obviously people we listening and watching this have no idea um i mean how did you become so culturally sensitive and aware <laughs> <laughs> but is that is that what what is missing what is there I'm, i suppose i'm just mm, just intrigued mm. i think there are, there are people doing this excellently and i think when we talk about cultural sensitivity um there's a, in the wake of everything that has happened over the last two years with covid and also an, an unpacking of black lives matter and people thinking oh this isn't just about somebody far off and it's become very clearly close um and people have felt released to be able to talk about their experiences um it's now become much more of a specific feature. So mm. safeguarding training includes cultural competency as part of it. Um, there are courses and specific courses around this now. Yeah. Um, I think it feels to me like that has increased in the last few years. Yeah. Um, but before that, obviously working in an area, you do think about the nuances of the different communities that exist there. You become attuned to some of those nuances. And I have colleagues who have been working for much longer than me who have grown with that. And it's very much embedded in their, yeah. their understanding that actually that there might be some things that this just brings an affront. This just brings a barrier if I talk about it in a certain way. Or I need to really think about with this diabetic person, Ramadan, and how that's going to impact wow. them. Or, yeah. you know, there's these kind of nuances that we just, we kind <clears throat> of become aware of. But I think to ever think that I am competent or that I know it all would be the opposite to cultural kind of competency. Well, this is, I mean, that's a, this is a very interesting point because, um, as you know, we put out our tip report um, a therapeutic intervention for peace report looking at um, 
therapy in the context of violence affecting young people and and what and we use the term cultural competency effectively saying you know yes it needs to be more representation black and brown representation but not just that if you're white and you're in this space are you culturally competent and then as time's gone on we've changed our language because as you've just said there like competency effectively means mastery and therefore can you really master culture like culture is fluid um whereas the research we've done but with humility cultural humility or cultural sensitivity takes more of a posture of learning um and ongoing learning and acknowledging that culture is intersectional culture is fluid you know and so i think it's really interesting that we never I don't think you can ever say, I've mastered Southeast London culture, I've mastered Manchester culture, whatever like that. So that ongoing posture of, of learning is good. But I also appreciate um, maybe my expectations on professionals like yourself, oh, be culturally sensitive. Like the work you guys have had to do, particularly in COVID, it's, it's probably stuff you've never experienced in your life. How have you managed that? What are some of the pressures which GPs are, have been under? Because I think it's important for people to to see the the complete three hundred and sixty mm-hmm. of what you guys are doing and have realistic expectations. What has it been like for over the last two years for you? Wow, what a oh, lovely we didn't question. plan this question. No, did we? but, I think, but yeah, I think um, it's really topical. There's obviously quite a lot of media um, discussion around this, um, and it has felt at times like general practice has been treated as a scapegoat in it, in the real challenges that have everyone's encountered um and there were just not enough of us um mm-hmm. we know that um there were promises for sort of 5000 6000 more yeah. gps and there were a deficit of almost 2000 so um full time equivalent gps so i think actually we're working harder than we've ever been working to to really give us best patient care as we can and it's really difficult because I can't speak for every GP surgery but I do know that my experience is the experience of many that we really just work you know we see the majority of patients who have COVID Um, we see the the kind of challenge it is for people to be taking telephone consultations as the priority but that is shifting back to -to face-to-face and actually we've seen more people um, than ever before the mm. pandemic, which again, that's not something that people are often aware wow. of. Um, nice. Yeah, so it just is really fascinating. I think general practice is incredible because people are so dynamic within, you know, you say, okay, you've got to be remote. You need to make sure people are safe um, and you need to switch all your your processes to in- enable that. Um and now you need to see people face to face. So you need to switch all your processes and, and nothing has remained the same. So every wow. day is that sort of cognitive, like, right, how do I do that? How do I get my patient to have that process done or that yeah. thing to happen? Whilst we're waiting for long waiting times in hospital, how do I carry this person who has X, Y, Z problem yes. and isn't going to be seen for maybe yeah. a year or longer um, and support them through that. So, yeah, I feel that um, general practice has done more and been more dynamic and responsive in the last two years than, than it, you know, ever before. Um, and the, the hope is that within that, young people don't get forgotten. And I think that there is 
an element that that seems to mm. be the case um where actually do young people want to to have telemedicine as their first point of call do they want to have an e-consult some people it is much more helpful but that's when you have more autonomy mm. when you're older you have more control over your timetable but actually when you're 11 to 19 20 21 22 you're really restricted in some ways yeah. as to how you can access these services yeah so um being kind of encouraged i want to see you let's let's convert this to a face-to-face -face, let me be able to see you um is just i think life-giving being told you know your problem we care about it early mm -hmm. on because we know about the long-term impacts that you know these these issues can take hold or you know they take root in adolescence but we could do something about them then yes rather than yeah. waiting for them uh, yeah. to be dealt with Early much later yeah it's particularly around mental health we know that 50 percent of all mental health disorders arise before the age of 15. So this is... Wow, I didn't know that. You know, right, right where we need to be working. It's why we talk about the teachable moment. It's why we're so interested. And it's why it's so related to public health approaches to youth violence. Because actually, what is going on for this young person yeah. now? And, do you, and it's really interesting you say, you say that because I think what we've definitely seen is that COVID has amplified some of these things. I mean, even with my own children or children that I, I, I know, I'm, I'm waiting <laughs> to kind of see well, what's been the impact of, of COVID, mm -hmm. you know, because um, there has to be. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we won't know for a few years, but I think we can't and we shouldn't underestimate that. Mm -hmm. Um one of the things I, I a friend of mine um, is a filmmaker, and he he did a, a documentary on his younger brother, who unfortunately uh, was stabbed. He he survived, but there's this really interesting moment in the film where he uh, recollects when he went into A and E, and he was the victim, but the staff said. You know, you really need to stop carrying knives. And his response to the camera was very much, um, I never said that I was carrying knives. They've made an assumption. And that accusation cut deeper than any knife wound. This is his words. Mm -hmm. So there was something which obviously came off the back of that, which was like, well, gosh, there is generalizations, stereotypes, biases towards young black youth in the medical profession. Um, what's your view on that? And how do we change and change uh, perspectives, biases? Mm. Do you see that playing out? So that's one question. And then the second follow-up question is just even in your own experience as a black female professional, just what have been some of the challenges? Has there been any challenges? to get to the point where you're at and what have you seen in your context? I suppose there's two questions mm, in there. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this and just the fact that um, we talk about youth violence, don't we? And mm. I think when that's brought up, we're thinking about the individual. We're thinking right. about it on that micro level. And yet I'm just convinced that, you know, there's so much that systemic 
violence, that's oppression, that's that's going on. Structural. Yeah, structural. Yeah. And that we have such a gift being medics, being doctors, being nurses, being physios, being to help support and end that by the way we see that young person. Yeah. Because actually, if it is a, it's, you know, um, there were people who speak so much more eloquently about this, but I was just thinking about Ibrahim Kendi in, in the US and he talks, he gives an analogy of like sort of um, racism being this like cloud, like that's raining down on everybody mm. and I, and that everybody's experiencing that rain. But it feels like some people have got a, a, a waterproof jacket and they, uh, some yeah. people have got an umbrella and some people are completely covered by it. Mm. And that's your privilege, isn't it? Yes. And so if I am in a position of privilege, I have an opportunity to, to you know, give some of that power over mm. and say, who is this young person actually? Let's learn them. Yes. Let's find out what their yeah. situation is and see them not through the lens of a black or white or a young, just a young person yes. who has a need, mm. who is vulnerable potentially. Who So w where my training comes in is to identify the need, not to put them in a box yes. or to label them, yes. but to say, okay, well, what? what do you need and how can I support that need? Yeah. You know? And so if I come with that posture, that is cultural humility, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? That all the start of it. Yeah. How can I um, understand you? What mm. is the compassionate response towards this situation? Yes. Um, I have, I'm equipped with knowledge that maybe actually the adolescent period, your brain is developing differently. Mm. So your needs are different. So actually the way I approach you is different because I recognize from a neurological perspective, you actually need something different to the person who's 35 in front of me. Wow. And actually you might on top of that have experienced significant trauma from what's just happened. So my trauma informed approach is to say, well, actually maybe you haven't turned up to that appointment because of your experience of healthcare settings actually this might be an unsafe place for you so it's interesting because you're what you're doing is you're 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 using language that i love so you're talking about not just the micro but the macro you're widening the conversation you're you're encouraging people to look beyond just that person you're saying well let's look at the context so so much of this would come into maybe even um, Professor Carlin Furman's work around contextual safeguarding as well mm. um looking beyond just the the the, the normal way that we'd look at um, harm and structural harm and stuff around young people. So I think it's really interesting. Mm. Is that something which you always had mm. in, so coming to your experience um, in your, in gaining your qualifications, become a GP and stuff. Did you have to fight for that? Was it, I mean, I, I feel like I know the answer, but it'd be okay <laughs> great to just kind of unpack it a little bit. Yeah. If you don't mind, because yeah. the last thing I want to do is actually potentially re-traumatise <laughs> like I think it's something you, I, I maybe didn't reflect on deeply mm. until actually the events of the last few years. And Interesting. Um, but, I, but I've always been aware of the, that there is an advantage, actually, when I'm speaking to certain patients that they would have a sense of feeling understood 
even before I've really said anything, yeah. you know, that maybe just that f barrier is gone mm. and I can, um, I had to realize that that was an advantage that I might have over a colleague potentially, or sure. that there's an opportunity for me to, 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 to be heard and for me to hear them. Yeah. Um, because they see me as a sister, as some will call me yeah. or in the, in yeah. a, you know, um, and I don't think that doesn't happen for other doctors because I think once you become attuned to that, you know, there are other colleagues of mine that I know will be asked, you know, how are your children at the end of the consultation? Because they get that that's yeah. the context, the culture for that patient. And there's work going on around that now, looking at, okay, well, what is it that a black person is looking for in the consultation and what are the barriers to them accessing health yes. that... um actually exists for every patient but if you do it right for the person who's most feeling at you know not accessing the care yeah. because of the structural systemic yeah. impact that racism has then you'll do it right for everybody so sometimes the rebuttal to that is well, this is what every patient needs yeah. and and then it's a reminder but not every every patient experiences well it's equity isn't it yeah it's effectively saying that it's not always it's not equal yeah. <laughs> it's how we do so that in an equity way and I think that's a really good point mm. I suppose um, if we're coming to the end of mm. our time and as always I'd, you know, I'd love to speak more about this and we have to get you in for part two mm. um, <clears throat> but I suppose the final question I've got is we've spoken about cultural sensitivity we've spoken about and you've just mentioned uh, post George Floyd I think for most people there's some type there's an awakening Mm. whether you're white or black or brown I think you you can't fail to have questioned where you are on this anti-racist journey mm. so with that being said and also the fact that we've had 30 young people in the last year um, in a London context who've lost their lives which is the highest since 2008 mm. what needs to happen with your sector for, for GPs, NHS staff to become more effective in this in this conversation, I don't know. I mean, it's a massive question. Mm. But what would you say from your perspective? What you know, what needs to happen? Mm. What what are the things which it might be small tweaks? It could be big reform change. I don't know. But from your perspective, how do we become more effective, culturally sensitive in this ongoing conversation of violence which affects young people? Mm. I think it can feel quite remote. Mm. But actually the work that we're doing is the work, you know, the times that we are identifying the safeguarding need and referring, the times when we're also within that understanding what the strengths are for this young person and their context and contextual safeguarding and and bringing that out and encouraging and kind of rubber stamping the the the, the softer things that don't seem so important but actually are like... Yeah. I ha who's engaging with you in school? How can I relate to school or advocate for you to make sure you're staying in school um, and that th we're addressing the mental health needs that might exist there mm -hmm. and thinking about those broadly. So now we have social prescribing in most areas, um, which Just is, that down. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, 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 part, a way to um, support the, the social needs of somebody. So that might be around your finances or your debt. If you're an adult, it might be loneliness. It might be that you need help with 
kind of writing out forms, whatever that might be. But, but for young people, mm. there's still a gap when it comes to that service. So for those who are commissioners and those who kind of um, create systems, yeah. um, we need to be thinking about that for young people yes. and building that in so that there are, you know, people who are helping young people to access the things that they might need yeah. that don't just sit within health directly. Um, and then, yeah, so just continuing to do what we do, recognizing it makes an impact, recognizing that this, you know, if this was 30 asthma deaths in a year, there would be significant assessments and reviews prompted by that. Yes. So thinking about it like that, because we don't think it's avoidable. We don't think that wow. we, we don't think that we can impact it. We don't realize that we can impact it. We don't realize that me, you know, seeing a young person and them knowing that's my doctor. Mm. Actually, I'm in foster care. But when I saw the doctor, they were talking to me. Yes. So I can call the foster carer and mm. say, I'm having difficulty. I'm in trouble. Mm. I'm finding this hard. Uh, can I speak to Dr. White? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because they've got that relationship early on will pay dividends later. And we know that globally. We know that there's this triple dividend effect because you're dealing with a young person, you're dealing with the parent they might become, and you're dealing with the next generation they may bring forth. So it's really crucial. It's at such a precious time. So rather than seeing adolescents as just a, a you know, a quick consultation, a relatively healthy population, which they are, this is a time for health promotion. This is a time for developing and encouraging healthy kind of understanding of their of their bodies, of their minds, and encouraging them to take good, healthy risks. Yeah. And so, you know, signposting to social prescribers who might be able to be linked in with a football club or this yeah. or that. Um, and then also really encouraging youth advocacy and recognizing the role that that has. And if there is a youth worker or a youth club, you know, getting connected, finding out what they're doing as a surgery mm. and becoming more a part of that community if you can and I know that there are so many pressures within general practice that that feels like it how, how um, and I think yeah. that is calling on the powers that be yeah. to resource that and to encourage that and and social prescribing is just a small example of that wow I mean that is it's just incredible just some of the things you just said there and so much of it makes sense but we we, we don't we don't put it in into play the powers that be don't put it into play but i do honestly believe the work that you are doing and other gps are doing is fundamental like you say if you can build those relationships um you can influence the trajectory of, of, of those young people and families impacted by violence affecting young people so i just want to say thank you we are doing some work together you're you're gonna You've been training some of our people. You were going to continue to do some great stuff because um, our philosophy is always about how many voices can we get, how many professionals can we impact, which ultimately will impact the lives of the very young people we've, we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I want to say thank you. Mm -hmm. it's, I want to encourage you. I want to say that the work that you're doing is groundbreaking and completely necessary. I wish I had a GP like you when I was a, a youngster, a teenager, um but yeah uh you know that powder fight love you and we appreciate everything you're doing so thank you so much for your time today 
has been much appreciated. Thank you for having me. I really feel privileged to be here, so thank you. Thank you.